Amen. Good morning, everybody. I want to say welcome to you to Four Oaks Killarne. If this is your first time with us, we're so grateful that you are worshiping with us this morning. Uh, my name is Rob Pfeiffer. I serve as part of the pastoral team here at Four Oaks Killarne. Uh, Pastor Paul, obviously he's not here today. Uh, Lord willing, he will be back with us next week, which I look forward to. And I'm sure you do too. Um, but I will just want to say that as we open God's word, uh, just to let you know where we're going, we are continuing on in the, the series of going through the gospel of Matthew, King and Kingdom. And we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 8 today. Uh, but before we get there, I want to let you know too that uh, today is, is what we refer to as Big Church Sunday. If you're not familiar with Big Church Sunday, over the summer, the first Sunday of each month, we invite all the children into worship with us. And so kids, I want to say, first of all, we are so glad you're with us and welcome. Uh, we are so grateful for you to be a, that you are a part of the body of Christ. And uh, we pray that as you worship with us today, uh, that you are, you are blessed in that. And kids, I do know for some of you, uh, I think this week is uh, getting back to school, right? Is that happening? Uh, oh. <laughs> I think that was a parent that was not a child. So, well, maybe it was. Kid, I mean, if that was, oh, that was, oh, okay, yeah. All right. I get it. Um, but yeah, we are, obviously, the announcements, we're getting into the fall season, a lot happening, which I'm very thankful for, excited for. And uh if you are new to the church, uh, this is a great time to get connected in, and uh, we would love to get to know you and meet you. Uh, so like I said, we are in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, what, what better way to, to start a sermon than to start out with making a blanket statement? Is that okay? Am I allowed to do that? And here it is. It's really more of an observation. I, I'm not saying this is an absolute conclusion, but maybe you agree with this statement and it's this, it's that, that not many people are amazed anymore by anything. Do you feel that? Is that true? Do you observe that? And I think we can agree that it, it wasn't always this way when we think of the, the, the techni uh, technology that we live in and all that's going on. I mean, we had to get to where we are. There were inventions that took place along the way to let us build upon. And I would assume that when that is happening amazement. Look what we can do now. Look what is available to us. I think of, you know, the invention of the airplane, the invention of, of modern medicine where it can prolong life, um, even thinking for a time that we were amazed at space travel, amazed by computers. In fact, in my back pocket, I have a mini computer that will connect me to the entire world if I want to, but I have it turned off, just so you know. So we're not distracting. But the thing is, is that really not much amazes us anymore. You know, we think of all the accelerating flow of inventions and their rapid dissemination throughout the world. It really has kind of numbed us and made us and made even the most amazing things seem commonplace, right? Not too long ago, early this month, uh, I took a trip out to Montana. I was Invited to go, and a, a friend of mine, being very generous, actually let me use some of their miles and, and got to go free, and it was great. Even got upgraded to first class. Whoa, okay? This guy does not travel first class, okay? Loved it. 
I mean, going to the, it was like one of the best flight experiences. It was seamless, no delays. We fly to Atlanta, get off the plane, and I promise you, it's like we get off, we walk, and we just walk and walk and walk. I don't stop. I don't sit down until I am sitting on the next plane. It was just like nonstop. It was great. Flight takes off, enjoying the big seat. I don't know if you know first class, they have large seats. And um, it was great. And so we're flying, and I'm like, man, we got like three hours to go, so like connect to the internet, watch a movie. Yeah. But then as I'm doing that, you know what I'm encountering, and then I start thinking to myself, man, this internet's kind of slow. <laughs> man, I mean, I don't know if I can, am I going to be able to watch this movie? I mean, am I going to get it done in time? And, you know, comical. I mean, I'm sitting in a chair, 40,000 feet, hanging in the air, traveling almost the speed of sound, and all I'm worried about is, man, this internet's slow. (laughs) Is there a flight attendant around that I can, you know, no. You know, what what should I have been doing? Like, look out the window, Rob. Look at the vastness of God's creation. Take it in. Take in the fact of just how small you really are in the grand scheme of things. And just ponder that for a second. Maybe that'll take you to really worshiping the Lord and giving gratitude unto him. I didn't do that. And I did not think about it until this week, until I was preparing for the sermon and like being convicted. Like, man, I could be really shallow. But it's true that we have made amazing things commonplace. But let's go a little bit deeper. Let's think about Christianity. One of the most amazing things about Christianity is God's grace. We used to speak of it as amazing grace, but amazing grace is no longer amazing to most people. We still sing the song, but I wonder how often we sing in the awe and wonder of that he truly saved a wretch like me. What about Jesus himself? How much of our walk with Christ is filled with marvel, filled with the amazement of who Jesus really is? Do we know him in this way? Do we follow him in this way? When we encounter Jesus in prayer through his word, are our hearts filled with wonder, gratitude, humility, love, and just downright amazement of who he is? And let me just boil it down to one word, awe. Are you in awe of Jesus this morning? Are you marveling at what he has done and who he is? You see, you and I, we were created to live our lives in the shadow of awe. Every word we speak, every action we take, every decision we make, every desire we entertain was meant to be colored by awe. We were meant to live with hearts gazing upward and outward. We were meant to live with hearts that are searching, hungry, seeking satisfaction, and being satisfied. But... If we are not getting that wonderment, that awe vertically, that is from the creator, then we'll be looking for it somewhere in the creation. And you know and I know that's when bad things start to happen. And so I'm praying our passage today will help us, help bring us back to that place of marveling. Specifically marveling at who Jesus is and what he has done, which leads us to the title of the sermon this morning, which is simply marveling at Jesus, marveling at Jesus. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. 
I'd like to invite us to stand, if you're willing and able, as we read through this passage together. In Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23, it says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And when they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Let's pray. Father, as we open your word and as we come to the truth and come to encounter what it is you are speaking to us through your word today, I ask God, will you have mercy upon us? Will you enable us, open our eyes, open our hearts to the truth of your word this morning, applying it to our lives and seeing you in a whole new way that is worthy of all of our praise and honor and glory, of a holy God, a just God. Also, may we be pointed to your son, Jesus Christ, and that we truly receive and and take heed of the call to, to follow him as our king, to submit unto him. And Holy Spirit, enable us, enlighten these words, bring, them, bring illumination to them in our hearts and unify us now. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So as, we, as I've read through this passage, this is not an unfamiliar story. The account itself is given actually in three of the four Gospels. It's also included in most children's Bibles, Right? Uh, In fact, it's also one of the main lessons in our our toddler preschool, by the way. When the the big point we're always getting across with the toddlers is this, that Jesus is the boss. And I love it. Because they think they're the boss, right? I mean, I don't know. And that doesn't seem to change as they get older, but that's another, I don't know. But Jesus is the boss. He's the boss of all. We also see that it's depicted with breathtaking terror, the story, and, the, and, and beauty in Rembrandt's painting, Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which you may have come across before. But as many times as, as we may have read this account in, this, in the Bible, we've maybe heard it preached or taught, or even as we look at the landscape, I think of our, of our American evangelical culture, okay, especially in America, I find that the, the, the main purpose and point of this passage, is it's often minimized or just missed altogether. And so my desire for us is to see that the ultimate message in this passage, it's not about Jesus calming the storms of your life. Or we do not see here that Jesus will see you through safely to every destination for yourself. You see, the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee is first and foremost about being confronted with the nature of Jesus Christ, who is truly man and yet truly God. And there are many truths and comforts we can pull from that statement, but unless we understand the true purpose of this passage, we cannot rightly apply it to our lives. And this morning, I would like to take us 
to these applications, but as we walk through the two main movements of this passage, which is the danger of the disciples and the deity of Christ. The danger of the disciples. As we look at this passage, we see that Jesus had already decided to get into the boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He had already decided. It says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. There was a purposeful act on by Jesus. And there is a following of his disciples. Keep that in mind. We'll talk more about that soon. Decisiveness on Jesus and a following of his disciples. Because we know in the context that the crowds, they had been pressing in upon Jesus that as we have gone through the Sermon on the Mount and all these teachings have been taking place and and the, the miracles and Jesus displaying his power, the crowds are growing and growing and growing and the demands are growing and growing. And what we see here is that Jesus was simply exhausted. He was tired. And it was Jesus' idea to go in, it, in that he expressed the desire to get into the boat and go to the other side. And I want us to take this from the beginning, to, and, and as I point this out, that as we unfold this story, we're not seeing that it was the disciples getting into this dangerous situation because they weren't keeping an eye on the weather or that they were making a poor decision. No, they were making the right decision. They were following their master. They were following the Messiah. It was Jesus who commanded that they go out onto the sea. And they followed his instruction. He gave the order and they went. The disciples followed Jesus. Now, I don't know how much you're familiar with the geography of this area. The Sea of Galilee, it's not a small lake. It's about 13 miles long by 7 miles wide. It's a very large body of water. And because there is a large mountain range to the east, and that the sea itself is about 700 feet below sea level, it's very common for the cool air from the mountains and the warm waters to meet, which produces these violent storms that can quickly form. And they, and they still do that to this day. So we see from Matthew's um, account here that a storm arose. It says in verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. In the other accounts in Scripture, Matthew and Luke, it gives more detailed, more dramatic description. Luke refers to the storm it's as a windstorm. He mentions that the boat was filling with water and that they were all in danger. And Mark gives the picture that the waves were crashing over the sides of the boat. We're talking deadliest catch rough, okay? Anybody deadliest catch? No? It's rough. And see, unlike on the show Deadliest Catch, this boat, it was not a sizable boat. Historical and archaeological facts give us clues that this type of boat was only 27 feet long, it was about seven and a half feet wide and maybe like four to five feet deep. And it was sail, wind powered. I mean, not a small boat. I mean, if you're a fisher, fisherman here, fisher lady in here, I mean, that's a nice boat. I mean, if I had a 27-foot boat, I'd be happy. Like, let's go out and go fishing. 
I love fishing. But understanding that this was a very, very small vessel in what was taking place with this storm. The danger was real. The fear of the disciples was real. The truth is, they were perishing. This was dire. I don't know if you've ever been out on the ocean to experience the power. Not long ago, I took a trip with my boys. We, we went to Bimini in the Bahamas, and we left Miami to make a trip east. It's about an hour across the Straits of Florida. And I remember when we got to the Gulf Stream, the ocean was a lot different. It wasn't the choppy waters of like the Apalachicola Bay. This was rolling, a rolling sea. It was calm, but it was just this steady rolling. And at points, we're down in the bottom, and all I'm seeing is a wall of water. Thankfully, it wasn't storming. It was sunny. It was actually a nice day to be on the water, believe it or not. But when I think of that, and maybe you can picture this in your mind, just the power of God's creation, that we cannot control it. We can harness it in different ways, but very unpredictable at times. They were facing death. And it's important to understand that the disciples, we can't fault them for being afraid. If you or I were in this position, in this circumstance, we would have been terrified. But Jesus, what was Jesus doing? He was sleeping. Mark tells us in the, his gospel that Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. He was exhausted. He slept because he needed rest. Matthew Henry's commentary points this out about this picture. He says about Jesus, he slept to show that he was really and truly man and subject to the sinless infirmities of our nature. We know Christ was sinless, but he was truly man. He was tired, so he slept and seemingly unaware of the imminent death facing them all. The disciples' response to this. Verse 25, and they woke, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Again, if you read in the other gospels, there's a bit more flavor to what they're trying to communicate to Jesus. You get this sense that they're astonished. How can this man sleep, but also how can he sleep knowing that we are about to die? Bringing the question to him in such a way, asking, do you not care? And they ask it in a way that all of us are dying. We are dying. Do you not see the circumstance, Jesus? They're astonished about how he can be sleeping. Maybe the question is raising up, is he not concerned? Is he so indifferent to the danger around him that he doesn't even wake up on his own? Does, does he not care about us anymore? May I pause here and just get us to reflect, is, is this the state of your heart this morning? 
And I say so with great compassion to you that you may be experiencing this right now, that there is a great storm raging in your life of circumstance and you're feeling very alone and you're feeling like there's no way out and you're, you're, you're doing your best to put your faith and to trust in Jesus, but there's that nagging question, is he hearing me? Does he care? Does he understand? And you see, that's why I think when we read these, these stories and putting ourselves into the place of the disciples, we have to be careful to not put ourselves above the disciples. To not sit there and think, oh, silly disciples, you shouldn't be afraid. Maybe you don't say it that way, but I think we can think it. We're, we, we become a little bit numb to really what is taking place and what is the human experience of what we're reading. And if we're not doing that enough, it's, it's hard for us to enter into what is taking place and apply it to our own lives. And I think if we understand that these disciples, they are men, they are, they are frail, they are mortal. Yes, they have followed Jesus. Yes, they have made the decision to follow their master. But now this following has taken them into a place of danger. And understandably, this question arises which I think is why we see this response, or at least one of the reasons. So are you asking these same questions? My encouragement to you as we continue is to continue to follow and to set your eyes upon Jesus and who he is and what he has done. The story, it, it pivots here. At this point, it pivots into what will now be displayed and, and help us to see and even display to the disciples that, that Jesus himself, he is not only man, but he is God in the flesh. With the storm still raging, the boat still being tossed and violently on the waves, the boat filling with water, death being intimate, the disciples are expecting to die at any moment. Jesus wakes up. And he asks a question. Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? Before he rebukes the wind and the sea, he first rebukes the disciples. And it's good to ask the question, why? And what is Jesus specifically rebuking the disciples of? Because understandably, they're fearful, as I just said. I would be too. But what is it exactly that they've gotten wrong? It is this. It is that their fear caused them to demonstrate no faith in the situation. They were panicking. See, they weren't even like using maybe some logic. And I'm not saying that this is what's said. But as I think about it, they, they know who Jesus is. They are following him. They are believing in their heart that he is the Messiah that he is their master. And as they're beginning to understand the ministry and purpose of Jesus, they're not able to put together, well, would God let Jesus drown in this moment? Or are they thinking and being reminded, wait, Jesus said we're going to the other side. He said this is what we're doing. You see, their fear is, is drawing them away from his word. 
His, their fear is isolating into their own understanding rather than listening and trusting in the words of Jesus. May we take heed of that this morning. Wherever you find yourself fearful, making bad decisions out of that fear, making things worse, stop. Pray. Consider and ponder who Jesus is, what he has done, what he has spoken to us, what are his promises, what are the promises that God speaks to us. This is the rebuke. Why are you afraid? Oh, you little faith. I take it also as a statement of compassion. I don't think we need to be ashamed that we are fearful at times. I don't think we need to be ashamed that we don't have all the answers. But what we should do and should know is that we are following, if following Christ, a compassionate Savior who receives us. At the same time, who is not unwilling to speak truth as cutting as it may feel, as judgmental as it may feel, the word of God is the truth that pierces through all things down to our core. You see, the danger caused them to doubt Jesus' care for them. Their experience of knowing Jesus, his teachings, his demonstrations of power and authority should have guided them otherwise, and this is what Jesus is rebuking them for. But what do we see? Jesus then moves on to deal with the situation at hand. And we find here in the word, it says, he rebuked the wind and the sea. And Mark says it in more detail, where he says, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace, be still. And what we read is that the storm ceases Immediately and completely. This was not a gradual subsiding. When Jesus commanded stillness, things were still, even the waves. You and I know if you've been to the beach and watching the winds and increase and die down, that if the winds stop, the waves keep moving, right? I mean, there's inertia, there's energy in the water, and it's going to take some time for it to settle out. This is not what took place here. The waves immediately came to a halt. This is what it means in the word when Matthew is saying, and there was great calm. You see, one of the misconceptions about this passage is that Jesus was responding to the disciples' fear by calming the wind and sea, and that's not the case. He wasn't trying to calm their fears What Jesus was doing was he was displaying who he really is. He is fully God in complete command of the creation. Because as we read, the disciples, their fear didn't subside. Their fear went way up, right? Because they realized they were encountering God. The word says that they marveled. The Gospel of Luke says they were afraid and they marveled. 
Why is this? It's because they're, they're faced with the undeniable reality that they were not just standing before a man who was just sleeping because he is exhausted. But they are standing before the living God. God in the flesh. And we find in the word that an encounter with God always results with fear and trembling. They were marveling, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? The answer is that this is the God-man. There is no other conclusion for them to make. Who else controls the wind? Who else controls the sea? In Psalm 135.7 it says, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouse. In Psalm 65, 7, it says, Who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples? In Psalm 93, 4, it says, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. The truth is, is the one who is at arm's length in the boat is not merely a man. He is, a, he is not a man sent from God, but it is God himself. And that's what the disciples are encountering here. And the disciples were left marveling with the point that Jesus is God in the flesh. I said earlier, I think we can be too hard on the disciples. And just how we observe and, and track with their progression of getting to know Jesus more and experience him and follow him. We have to remember that we're only in chapter 8 of, of Matthew. There is more to unfold. In fact, we don't even see Matthew himself called to be a disciple until further in chapter 9. Jesus is building his ministry. Jesus is fulfilling and walking out the purposes of this salvation plan. You see, one of the things about following Christ that we can miss out on is the wonder of discovering who Jesus is. Think of yourself right now if you're in this room and maybe you're a recent Christian. Maybe you can speak very clearly to the testimony of what God has done for you, awakening your soul to him, saving you, and you have immediate connection to who you once were but now who you are. That is wonderful, and we stand with you praising God for this. But we also know that as we continue in our walk with Christ, what can tend to happen is this, this dulling in our souls. And we have to be honest as to why that is taking place. My natural question in seeking out and wondering, is God not here? Is he not with me? Does he not hear me? Usually the truth is, is, is that I'm wandering from him. Doesn't mean that God is not silent in seasons. Doesn't mean that there's purposes in, those, in that silent moment. But we have to go to our own hearts and just stop and think and evaluate. When was the last time I just sat with the Lord and pondered his greatness, his vastness, We 
what we should take cue from the disciples is that they, we are seeing them discover Jesus. And I do say I am a little jealous that they have a front row seat, just saying. But you know what I mean. I mean, there's, this, is, this is a beautiful story, but it applies to us just as much today. One thing I want to interject and just ask this pondering question if I could, and I admit it's going to be sprinkled with a little bit of sarcasm. All right, just bear with me. Just thinking through this, as, as the disciples finally get to the other side and they're disembarking the boat, I'm, I'm like, what, did, what was that conversation like? Right? I mean... And I like to think in that way because I think we, again, understanding the, the human connection of what was happening. And, but I, I, don't, I don't think the, the disciples were gathering around and, and were saying to each other, like, hey, that was a good reminder that if God takes you to it, he can take you through it. <laughs> and always remember that when life gets tough, Jesus has your back. Hey, do you have that whatever, you, whatever Jesus, what is that, W? What would Jesus do, Bracelet? See, I just murdered that. That wasn't good. Um, I'm not trying to make fun of these things. But I want us to understand that when we're encountering God, when we're encountering him through his word, we can't just remove ourselves from experiencing or even possibly experiencing these same type of encounters that really press in on us and affirm to us the truth of who Jesus is. Now, it is true that, I mean, there's some truth that if God takes you to it, he can take you through it. But we don't have assurance that that is always going to be the case. And I want us to be careful that we're not just, like, reducing this story down, just kind of like the common play and just like, you know, some catchy phrase. I'm praying that we are brought to who Jesus really is, being both fully man and fully God, and letting that bring amazement to you marveling in it just as the disciples marveled when they encountered and saw the miracle, but realized this is fully everything that he says he is, fully man, fully God, and they're seeing this. I pray that we can encounter this. It does speak to what can be the modern misconceptions of the passage itself, that really simply what we are called to behold here is what God was choosing to reveal, and that is Jesus is fully man and fully God. Ponder that. Pray upon that. Let that build in you an amazement and marvel in who Jesus really is. So do you marvel at this account when reading through it? Does does your sense of awe increase? I understand it may be hard right now because of what you may be dealing with in the storm of your life. But I will call us to understanding again the miraculous truth that is almost indescribable or even impossible to explain that Jesus is fully man and fully God. How can you take that truth to even bring more amazement into your life Take upon this truth that in order, for Je- in order for Jesus Christ to be able to save us from our sins, he had to be truly man and truly God. This story encapsulates the actions of these two natures at work in this, these four short verses. Asleep, exhausted, awaking, 
and commanding the weather with his word. It brings us to a reminder of what God's redemptive plan that was set out before the foundations of the earth is coming to pass. It should encourage us and and give us faith that God's promises are true and that it will play out according to his decree and will. It should draw us to a settledness of who Jesus is for our life and to stand in that truth and to seek him and to obey him. And I would say that in the form of an application for us this morning, that's really where this lands for us this morning, I believe. First being that simply we are to sit in the awe and wonder at the truth that God the Son became man and died for us. Moreover, our debt became his debt, his inheritance, our inheritance, that in Christ we now have new life. We are new creations. We are born again. This story of Jesus calming the storm undergirds the truth of these promises. So when we read a passage like Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Praise God. Unless we are just pondering the truth of who Jesus truly is, I dare say that these words that even I just read, we are not going to be impacted because our faith is small. We, are not, we don't have a big vision and a reality of who Jesus truly is and what he has done. And what plays into that for us, and especially today in our culture? Distractions, 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 distractions. Now, I'm not talking about, like, hard work and hard things. I'm talking about social media. I'll go there. I'm talking about not even social media. Can you do this for me? Maybe when you go home, do an inventory. How much streaming time compares to your time with the Lord? I fall way short. I'll just say that right now. How much of your time is focused on setting aside just being with Jesus? Yes, in his word. Yes, through prayer. But can I just say on a much deeper level, sitting pondering, being in the quiet with him, being in the quiet, thinking and meditating upon his truths. You see, the truth is our distractions keep us in the horizontal. It keeps us from the vertical. It keeps us from the creator that feeds and has fed and continues to feed into the dullness of our culture today. It feeds into the dullness of church today. It speaks into the dullness of who we are truly called to be as followers of Christ, living in victory over sin and proclaiming Christ. 
I had someone tell me the other day that I will never forget that they said they want to be a follower of Christ worth following. A follower of Christ worth following. One thing that came to mind when I heard that immediately was our young people, our kids, our youth. And it squared centered right back onto me as a father. How do I display the love of Christ to my children and my family? How do I interact with the next generation in the life of this church? Am I excited about Jesus? Am I living in the awe and wonder and marveling about who Jesus is? Or am I portraying to the people in the next generation just, I'm bored. I need a, I need a faster internet. And we have to realize that as much as we may want to complain about the next generation and all that they do and don't do, we have to start with ourselves. What picture of following Christ are we giving to them? So this is a conviction even on myself. I want to marvel in Jesus. I want to live in amazement of him. And I'm not talking about in a fake way and just always, you know, rah, rah. I'm talking about true amazement and joy that is found in dwelling with Christ and following him. May we be that. So as we see in this story, it's a story of discipleship, faith, and the person of Jesus coming together. The calling of Jesus leads to faith. Faith leads, to the, leads those who believe to discipleship and those who follow Jesus as disciples grow in the knowledge of who he is and all that he can do. Wherever you are in that, it calls you to finding more of Jesus. If you are not a believer this morning, I present to you and call to you the gospel that is before you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you are new to Christianity, I call you to keep discovering more about Jesus, focusing your time upon him, focusing your mind upon him, and discover him. And as you continue to do, don't stop, because there's more and more and more and more to discover about who Jesus is, so that we can proclaim him, so that we can live for him, and be exactly what I said earlier, followers of Christ worth following. I pray for us as we leave this time this morning that what can go forth with us is just one of, a song that I love, but the words that say, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Begin this morning by just marveling in the love that Christ has for you. And I think together as a family of God, we can do that together as we prepare our hearts for the table this morning. As we think upon Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and the love displayed through that. And I pray that we together can come to that place and just, again, go to Jesus. So let's pray.